0: When we picked the topics a couple months ago, um, we had no idea what the news was going to be. <laughs> they teach prophecy here, but they're not prophets. <laughs> and I'll try to keep the share unrelated as possible to the news. Uh, what I do want to do, though, I want to begin with a bit of a story uh, that I learned from a friend of mine from yeshiva who went into business. He should have gone into education, but he did. A while, but he went into business, and he shared with me how the American economy is so strong and how it works. He says, what's what's behind the economy? Why does it thrive? It's called advertising. And people are told they need to buy things they don't need with money they don't have. You've probably heard that. And usually for people they don't like. <laughs> now, <laughs> I want to use that, excuse me, to begin with, uh, because when you buy something new, there's always a famous question. Do you want it or do you need it? Right? That's famous. And we all struggle with that all the time. And everyone knows from the title um, that David didn't build the Beit HaMikdash. Correct? I think that's the title, my David didn't build. And everyone knows that he didn't, even though today we'll see that he did. In all this shiurim here, usually the title is always the opposite of what's going to be. Or they take something you thought you knew and switch it around a little bit. That's not the goal, but it ends up happening. Uh, the, the idea here is to understand Chumash a little more in depth, and Tanakh in general. But give me the classic answer that everyone says. Why couldn't David build a Mikdash? Just give me the famous... He had blood on his hands. And you learned that before you were born, probably. If you ask, almost everyone knows that answer. And they have no idea when they learned it. But it seems like everyone knows that. From kindergarten? I don't know when. Because if you wanted to look up where... I'm going to find the answer to that question. What book would you look into? Probably the book of Shmuel, which is the story of David. Maybe in or something like that if you do things. And if you read the story in Tanakh, that's not the answer that you give at all. There's no blood in the story there at all. We'll get to there soon. Uh, but I want to go back to my story with my friend. If David is going to want to build the Beit HaMikdash, and God's going to say no, so let's check out. Does David want to build a Mikdash because he wants something better? He wants like an upgrade? He had a, a Chevy, now he wants to buy what's the new what's the new thing? A corolla a, uh, or, uh, he wants something better. He, he had an Android, once, an iPhone or something like that. Is it simply a better Mishkan? Does he want, um, or Cadillac, that's it. Uh, they still make those? <laughs> the uh, Rolls Royce for those from England. Um, the, the, does that mean somebody want a better Mishkan upgrade? Right? Is he want something more? Or is there a need now that didn't exist before? Understand the two possibilities? So, to deal with that question, and when God's gonna say no, if David wants something extra, God would say, no, because you don't deserve it. That would be a classic understanding. I want to build a temple. I want to do something, you know, something better. And God says, you don't deserve it. You have blood on your hands. Or is there a need? We have to see what that need might be. And that God's answer wouldn't be not that you don't deserve one, but rather, yeah, you don't need it yet. Okay? Like with kids growing up. I want a car. Of course they want a car. <laughs> do you need a car or do you want a car? And maybe not now, maybe not when you're bar Mitzvah. maybe... Uh, when you get a little older. okay. Now, so what I want to do on a source sheet, we'll follow it. I'm sure half of you tried to go through it already. Okay. Um, I want to begin with the source of when is it time to build a Mikdash? Now, what we have to talk about today, is there a fundamental difference between a Mishkan and a Mikdash? The Mishkan, in English, is called a tabernacle. uh, We're commanded to build one in Chumash, and I'm going to follow the Ramban Nachman's explanation, which is right on the mark, where the primary reason for Mishkan, there might be other reasons, is that the Jewish people need a constant reminder of Mount Sinai. Not of what happened, but why it happened. The Jewish people never leave Mount Sinai, According to Ramban. We take Mount Sinai with us. But what element of Mount Sinai do we take with us? Our commitment to be God's people. The main event that happened at Mount Sinai is not what we received, but what we took upon ourselves. It wasn't that we received the Ten Commandments, that was important, But the main thing beforehand, when we took upon ourselves a covenantal commitment to be God's people forever. And when you're covenantally committed in a partnership to work for someone or to be dedicated to someone, you need a constant reminder of that commitment. I don't want to bring examples from marriage, but you can make up your own. You're committed to something. You're committed to an agreement, to a covenant. And I need a constant reminder because that covenant is with me every day of my life in Judaism we remember that commitment every day when we say Shema, every week when we keep Shabbat, every year on Yom Kippur, every seven years at Hakel, every once at Yovah maybe. But that, that's the core commitment of the Jewish people to be God's people forever. You need to remember that. And Ramban claims that the Mishkan is going to be a constant reminder to the Jewish people of not only what happened at Harsinai, that it happened, rather that eternal commitment to be God's people. I oversimplified the Ramban, but the rest is already imagery, ask an architect how images reflect and remind you of uh, key themes and ideas. Now, the reason we need a Mishkan in the beginning, as opposed to a Mikdash, there's one fundamental difference. It's called portability. The Mishkan is portable by definition, by its very nature. The poles, it's, it's, it's a tent, an ohel, And we need a portable Mishkan because, as a nation, we're leaving Har Sinai, we're traveling through the desert, we have to conquer the land of Israel, and we're basically a nation on the move and if I'm going to have a tabernacle to remember our national connection to God, it needs to be portable to fulfill its function. The question is, is the portability of the Mishkan something um, built into the Mishkan? It needs to be portable because we need to know it's got, it can leave all the time. Or is it simply portable because that's the state of the nation? But it could be if the nation matures to a level where we're stable, we're... We have secure borders. We're set as a nation. We've matured as a nation. We have, we've gone through adolescence and now we're mature now. We're an adult as a nation. Maybe now it's time, instead of living in a tent and moving from one dorm to another kind of thing, to settle down and build a house or make Aliyah and, uh, and try to build a house. Okay. Now, so that's what i will talking about. So let's take a look. What Chumash has to say about this? Now, the book that talks about the Mishkan, of course, the Sefer Shmot. There's another book that talks about what we call Mikdash, which is Sefer Tvarim. And we're going to see the source in Sefer Tvarim. That's going to be source A. I prefer if you follow if you have Tanakhim. The assumption is everyone should bring Tanakhim, but the reality is a lot of you don't. So the key sources are on the source sheet. Some are translated, some aren't. And we're going to see what happens in Sefer Tvarim. In Sefer Tvarim, we have a set of laws of how to become a nation serving God in the land of Israel as God's people. To be commanded to conquer the land. And in chapter 12 in Sefer Delarim, there's a commandment, when you come into the land and conquer the nations, get rid of all the idol worship so they don't influence you. Make sure that you conquer the land, the land doesn't conquer you. And then, therefore, wipe out all those places of idol worship. Don't do that to your God. Instead, pick one place. They worship their gods in many places. On high hills, under trees. Don't do that to your God. Instead, pick one central place to serve him. That's called, and we'll read now the detailed line, in, uh, verse 10. When you cross the Jordan, you settle the land, which God is giving you. And you have rest from all your battles. And oh, by the way, they put the staple backwards, because it's still Israeli. You understand what happened? So the staple, we're in source A, not source. Okay, yeah. yeah, I see some of you look confused. Okay. <laughs> so A, A is still A. A on the left side. Right? The staple is on the wrong side of the paper. Once you figure that out, then you'll be okay. <laughs> you can, if you really doesn't bother you so take the staple out and put it in, in the <laughs> the staple <laughs> okay. now um, now uh, so when you conquer the land and settle down and you have rest from all your enemies around and you're secure remember then the place that I'm going to choose for my name to dwell there, um, that's where you do all the things I'm commanding you. Now, um, verse 11 is communicated back to verse 5. If you have a I'll read it for you. God says, When you come to land, um, Don't destroy um, an altar for God and don't serve God in many places, as Rashi explains. Instead, I'll translate when you come to the land, um, don't serve God in many places, only go to the one place that I'm going to choose, but the place that God's going to choose for his name to be known. the Shemosham. Now, there's two key words we're going to focus on. The word makom, which means a place, more than just a place, and shem, God's name. Now, who is going to choose this place that God's going to choose? Remember who's buried in Grant's tomb? Those for, not that line. Okay. No, who should choose the place that we're going to build the Mikdash? It says God will. But look at the end of the passage. The What's that mean? You have to look for it. And that's key. God might choose the place, but you have to look for it. If you were 18-year-olds in seminary, um, I can make a seminary joke, not a joke, an analogy, where even though before you were born 40 days, God already knew who, who you're, the shirt was going to be, you just have to look for them. If you remember that analogy. The fact that, the fact that God chose something doesn't mean you don't have to look for it. Chazal learned from there, remember? We're going to read Yeshua Hashem You have to look for God. And if you want to rebuild the Mikdash, you have to want to. We'll talk about that soon. So again, God is going to choose a place. We have to look for it. It doesn't say Yerushalayim specifically. No. We conquered the land of Israel in the time of Yeshua's. We have partial success, not complete, but pretty decent. But we don't find Yeshua building a temple. What does he do instead? He gets halfway there. We go from a portable Mishkan, and we move in chapter 18 in Sefer Yeshua, we move to Shiloh. Shiloh is a little more permanent, because the walls, instead of being out of wood, are going to be walls made out of stone. But the tent, the roof, is still going to be made out of material. And therefore, Mishkan is a temporary resting place, but it's not a permanent building. That'll be Shiloh. And Shiloh later is going to be destroyed. Then the Mishkan goes to Novir Kohanim. Shoal doesn't do. Doesn't like it too much there. We know what happens. The Mishkan moves later to yeah. Givon. And during the time from Yeshua until the time of David, the Mishkan seems to be rather neglected. In Sefer Shoftim, we don't hear we don't hear about the Mishkan except at the end of the book. In a very sad story, when we're short of, there's a big civil war and there's all the women were killed from Binyamin, and no one would want to marry for those 400 or 600 men left over. So there was a chag, there was a celebration in Shiloh where they, where they you know, took, took their wives because we, maybe we made a promise we can't keep them. But it's almost never mentioned as a central place of worship in the time of, of the Shoftim. Or in a nutshell, the Mishkan seems to be very much neglected during the time of the Shoftim as is God, because they have got a lot. Shoal becomes king and he becomes king and sets up the kingdom It has an army and is relatively successful. But we don't find Sha'ul doing anything about building the Mishkan. Rather, instead, he destroys of the city of the Kohanim, where the Mishkan was. Now, the Mishkan was destroyed in Shiloh. And the Mishkan, at the center of the Mishkan is the Aaron, which has the Luchot, our, our covenant, our symbol with God. And it was taken captive by the Plishtim. I'm sure you remember. It came back to Rabbah Bechemesh. Shemesh, Remember? From the, uh, <laughs> it went on the railroad tracks, if you know the area there, to Beit Shemesh. Uh, it didn't last there very long. There was another tragedy. And then it went from Beit Shemesh to Telstone. Agreed? Remember Karat Yarim? Yeah. If you know your geography in Israel today, it, it made its way back to Israel. It ends up in Telstone in Kerat Yarim area. And it stays there. And go and take care of it. The Mishkan went from Nov to Nov and then to Givon. And guess what happened? The Mishkan stayed in, in Givon. The Aron stayed in Yarim. and what didn't they do? They didn't come together. It could be one of two reasons. The modern day reason, if it's like nowadays, the people in Givon said the the Luchot, the Aron should come to us. Understand? And the people in Yarim said what? The Mishkan should come to us, got it? And guess what happened? No one budged. And the UN didn't get involved, and no one <laughs> and things just stayed. Um, the other reason might be because it was neglected, and we're going to see David Melech says that actually in, in Divari Hamim when he wants to build the mikdash he says kilod rashnu vimei Shaol. Yes. I, when I become king, that my predecessor Shaol did nothing about the mishkan. When I become king, what's David going to do? David is going to do everything to make the mishkan now the center of the nation, because again they're neglected. The Aron and the mishkan are neglected. When David becomes king, so it takes a while to become king. But once all the nations of Israel, all the people, all the tribes of Israel come together in Shmuel, Bet, Perikeh, and they anoint him king and said, hey, we, we run your team all along. Remember that in the beginning? They all come and say, was, we always knew you are going to become king. After they won, after <laughs> Shaul died and everything. Uh, he makes himself king in Hebron. What's the first act that David does as king? To unite the people? He moves his capital city from Hebron which is the center of Yuda, to the border between Yehudah and Binyamin, the border between Rachel and Leah, the children of Rachel and Leah. And he captures Yerushalayim. Mitzvot, everyone knows that story. And after he captures the city and sets up his, his, his own capital there, his political capital, the next thing he wants to do is he wants to bring the Aaron to Jerusalem. We, we read that story for Haftar recently. And he has great intentions. There's a tragedy on the way. We know the story of Peretzal we finally get it all done. We finally get it right. And David brings the Aaron to Yerushalayim. That's chapter... We tested chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the book of Shemuel. Yeah. What's the next logical step now that the Aaron is in Yerushalayim? He wants to build a house for God in Yerushalayim. And that's going to be our next source. Um, we're going to return to source A in a minute. Uh, go down to source um, D because I want to share the word, the opening line. Chapter 7 in the book of Shemuel. What does it say? Source D. This is just in Hebrew, but I'll translate. Ring a bell. It's word for word from Sefer Tvarim. David is in his house, and he has rest from all his enemies. He fought lots of battles. Now things have calmed down. Now, David was Yeshiva buffer. And he spoke in Kabbalahomers. Understand the Kabbalah Homer? Instead of David saying, I want to build a house for God, what's he saying? I'm living in a palace and God's tent is in a, I mean, God's house is in a tent. So I'm in a palace, you're in a tent. That doesn't make sense. What's in essence he's saying? It doesn't make sense that if I'm living in a palace and I'm, no, it doesn't make sense that everyone has nice villas and the shul is in someone's basement. Or the shul is in some tent, you understand? So it's, if it's a new community and we're on the move, okay, so there's a temporary shul. But if everyone's settled down and build nice houses and everyone's still dwelling in someone's, you no, know, one in a or in someone's basement, that's not right. Therefore, we need to build a shul. The shul should be as nice as everyone's house. And therefore, David's saying, Now that I have a temple, now that I have a palace, God should also have a palace. What should the obvious answer be? Right? David wants, go yes. In fact, Nathan the David answers him, go for it. Great idea. It's a, it's, I don't need to ask a rabbi. It's so obvious. Anyone can answer that question. And for some reason, that night, God comes to Natan and tells him, Tell David, no, not no. <laughs> we'll see in a minute. God's answer to David is not no, it's not yet. That we're going to see very soon. Which would be a very strange answer. Everything seems to make so, even It even makes sense to the Navi Natan. And God has to come and correct the Navi Natan that night and tell him, tell David basically slow down. And that's going to be the question now. Why is God telling David not no but not yet? What was David thinking? What, what's the need for the Mikdash? And there's a more philosophical question. Who needs a temple? Does God need a temple or do we need a temple? Like when we daven. Does does God need our prayers? Do we need to pray? That's in philosophy. It's a great question. Of course, they're both true. But in the case of the Mikdash, is the Mikdash something that David needs? Because he wants the nation of Israel to be closer to God. We want to sanctify God greater by having this big fancy building. Or like when we want to build a better shul. Are we doing it for the name of God? Or are we doing it for the name of the person who's on the plaque? Now... uh, it, it's always a good question. And it's a difficult question, but it's, it's uh, we, we build it anyhow. But you always have to move forward. Debbie's going to deal with that question very soon. Now, what's God's answer going to be? Um, I'll begin the answer in Pasuk Dalet. That evening, God came to Natan. Go to Debbie. Are you the one who's going to build a house for me? He gives a sort of strange answer. I added a question mark, but it's clear that it's a rhetorical question. Okay. And then God says, from the time I picked leaders over the Jewish people, I never asked anyone, how come you didn't build a house for me? In other words, I never demanded any leader before you, I never re- reprimanded him and said, how come you're not building me a temple? One, you think I want one. And what why do you think you deserve to build one, possibly? And then, without reading all the detailed answer, because we only have uh, 45 minutes to go, in Hashem. Aleph, okay. He gives a whole long answer, which we don't have time to go into, through Jewish history of the time of the Shoftim. He says, I never asked anyone else to build a house for God. And I made you better than everyone else. You have more rest from your enemies than anyone before you. But I'm telling you something. Which is almost an opposite answer. What's God's answer in Pasikir Aleph? I'm telling you, you can't build a house for me. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. See that again? Take a look at what God said at the end of verse 11, Pasikir Aleph. I'm telling you that God's going to build a house for you. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Why? Because David says, I have a house and you're in a tent. God says, you can't build me a house. I have to build you a house. It's a different type of a house. What's God basically saying? What we call base David. Before you can build a house for me, you have to have an established monarchy. And all those of you from England will understand this much better. A monarchy, what's measured in a strong monarchy or in any government is its stability. And what's great about a monarchy, it's much more stable than a democracy or almost any other form. Because instead of um, everyone fighting, it's only fighting within the family. (laughs) Instead of civil war, it's only a family feud. But the question is, do we know who the successor is going to be? And God's saying, if you're going to be a strong nation, and you think you've reached a level of permanence, David, what makes you think that your leadership is any different than anyone before you? Because what's the difference between the time period of the Shoftim of the judges and the kings? A Shofet, you could see it as simply, it's an ad-hoc leadership. That um, there's no there's no continuation. There's no dynasty that one, in fact, the only time we tried it was a disaster with Gidon and Abimelech. Someone who's a leader doesn't mean his kid becomes the leader, his child, but rather, people rose to the moment and sort of a ad, hoc, ad hoc leadership or almost lack of leadership during the time of the Shoftim. Now we have a kingdom, but who says it's going to be a monarchy? Who says it's going to work and going to last? What makes this permanent? What would be the sign that David's kingdom is actually permanent if David's able to be king, have a child who'll take over his kingdom, and everything to be stable at least two generations. And what God seems to be telling David is, if you have a child, okay, and you set up a monarchy, then once the monarchy is set, it's time to build a house for God. That seems to be the answer. We'll tweak it a little bit as we go on. Okay. Now, God explains. It's like saying, we have to wait till you die. I'll help establish your children after you. I'll make sure that his kingdom gets started. Okay. He will build a house for my name and I'll establish his kingdom forever. You understand God's answer? God, there's not a drop of blood in the whole story, is there? God doesn't say you're a bad guy, you, you fought wars, everything you heard when you before you grew up, before you were born, remember? Okay. The answer everyone knows from, from early in the Jewish education, it's not here. God gives a very different answer, not you but your son. We'll see later on that David actually builds the temple. Almost. He gets everything ready. He, he, he gets everything ready so when Shoma becomes king, he just has to put it together. He raises the funds, he gets everything organized. Anyone's built a house before, half the building is before you put up, before you start getting the materials, getting the, 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 the architect, the plans, the funding. It takes a long time. And David spent his last decade getting that all ready. Now, but notice in the story, the word shame comes up in the answer. And that's going to be the key to understanding what's going on. What I want to do now in part two is I want to understand what's this idea of a building a house for God's name. In other words, who needs a temple? Does, does God need a temple or do we need a temple? Or what we need? It seems to be this temple was named for God's name. Name here means reputation. There's a saying and I think, remember, Tov Shemin Shem, right? a Tov? A good name. A good reputation is better than good wine or good good oil. Reputation is important. Now, how do you give reputation? That's why I brought the example about advertising. How do you market a product? It has to have a good name. Customer service. Remember? You want to buy a car. You want to know they're going to fix it and things like that. You want to know they're going to take responsibility. How do you give a name? How do you make a name for a company? How do you make a name for yourself? You make a name for yourself. You need a reputation. Now, how do you give a reputation and visibility to a God who's invisible. no Gods who are visible, gods like, um, you ever see those Buddhas? You can't miss them in India, if, you, if you've ever been there. You, there. And when you have a building, or a structure, or, or an idol, you hear about the God. You build him a big temple, you know about him. But how about a God who has no name? Uh, no name. A God who has no, no form, no nothing. When we think about that. How do you give a visibility to a God who's invisible? Well, if you talk about him enough, right. it might help. If everyone's talking about him, and be very careful for they mention his name, we can make a name for God by talking about God. It's called advertising. And I want to show you that there's this theme of God's name or God's reputation that begins almost with creation. And that's going to be, now we'll go back to um, the first page, to source B. Opposite the, uh, don't let the staple fool you. Go back to Source B, the theme of Shem Hashem and Brishit, And this, I'm going to take a 10-minute break to do a short little show on Sefer Brishit about a theme in Sefer Brishit that connects to what's going on in Sefer Shmuel and why David wants to build a house for God's name. Sefer Brishit is not just about what happened. It's about why we're chosen. And everyone knows the first 11 chapters of Breshit set the stage for God picking Abram Avinu in chapter 12. Those the first 11 chapters is God creating not just uh, nature, but also civilization, nations, the nature of nations—you know, going to different um, human beings forming into civilization, into different peoples. Remember the Migdabah story. As the story goes on, before Avram is chosen, the reality is there's what we call seventy nations. But human beings form into different groups, usually based on borders, based on common needs, common resources. But there's many nations. No. Um, in the first story of creation, the first five chapters, first four or five chapters, God makes man, God makes Gan Eden, God kicks man out of Gan Eden, we have kind and Hevel. When the Kain and Hevel story is over, we have this really strange line, which is, um, again, chapter four, the first mention of Shem Hashem. Remember, uh, there's kind, there's Hevel, and then Adam and Chavez say, we want to try try again. First two didn't work out so good. They have a kid named Sheit, and he has a kid named Enosh. So we'll read that line. And that's the end of chapter 4. If you look at it in your Tanakh, you'll see it's the end of a chapter, it's the end of a unit. There's a parshia. It's like a cliffhanger. We have the story of Kain and Hevel, which ends the story of Gan Eden, pretty much. And what happened when Enosh was born? Man began to call it in God's name. Is that good or bad? We have no idea. But it's strange. It's, it's not followed up at all. It just leaves you hanging. What happens in chapter 5? Genealogies. We go back to Rav Arisha and down till to Noach and the story of the flood. We leave this whole theme, we're left hanging in the end of chapter 4, that men at that time of Enosh began to call it in God's name. And there's different translations. What does it mean? In fact, if you look in Rashi, or look at the Arscoach translation, it won't say that. It won't say the God man began to call it in God's name. It said, man began to defame God, or debase God. He began to profane God's name, it says. And there's a great argument among the commentators... What is Chumash saying? Did something good happen or did something bad happen? Did man finally begin to recognize God and talk about Him and talk to Him and pray to Him? Or did God begin to profane God's reputation and forget about Him which leads to the flood? Um, but we'll leave it open now. The next time we have the theme of shame is one of the strangest stories in Chumash. I think that those in the show beforehand you learned about Noah, right? With Rabbi Waxman. So I'm not sure. I'm, I doubt if he talked about this part of it but Noah had three sons. He was commanded to have children, wasn't he? But he didn't add any after the flood. But his children were commanded to have children. But before the flood, he had three children. What were their names? Yeah. Now, Yefet was a beautiful name. You understand why? Why is Yefet a beautiful name? Okay. And, and It's beautiful, Yefet. Um, Ham was the hottest name <laughs> at the time. It was like It was very popular. Shame, that's boring, isn't it? You ever wonder why Noah called his son Shame? Yeah, it, it, it makes no sense to call your son shame, unless you didn't read the form right in <laughs> name. It just circled it. Yeah, it's Zachar Nekeva, Zachar shame. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he has a name, <laughs> and the guy put in shame. It makes no sense to call a son shame, okay. unless you want your son to be a rabbi. That's how Chazal understand. Am huh? well, Who correct? Who's the first Rosh Yeshiva? Shame. Where's that coming from? Because later on, we're going to get the story of Abraham Avinu in the end of chapter 11, after the story of the Tower of Abel. How does Abraham's story begin? And not picking Abraham Avinu. It begins with the genealogy of shame. Shame has to understand there's something important about him. Why did Noah call his son shame? What I want to suggest is, he wanted his son Shem to be a rabbi. Especially if you follow Chazal, that he was born after the news of the flood. Remember, Noah waits 500 years to have children, doesn't he? And the news of the flood was in year 4.8. It was 120 years before the flood, if you understand, to 120. In a nutshell, it seems like Noah only has children when he finds out that the neighborhood's changing. (laughs) (laughs) And there won't be any bad kids left in the neighborhood. And he's bringing up children for after the flood. And he wants one of his children, at least to be a rabbi. And what's that son going to do? He'll make a name for God. And to remember that at the bris, uh, at the the, uh, Zebed HaBen, I call it. No one got that. No one got the joke. Um, right. <laughs> the, that was at the celebration when he named Shem, what was he saying? This child is going to make a name for God, and it must have worked. Why? Because after the flood and after the story, you, some of you learned about when Noah got drunk. Noah's not happy, is he? But some kids get blessings, some get curses. Who got a blessing? Well, read carefully. Look at the next source. Boomer, Boruch Hashem. He's the first one to say Boruch Hashem. Okay. Elohei Shame, viknan ebed lamo. Is that a blessing of shame? Who's being blessed here? Baruch Hashem. Hashem is being blessed. And who is Hashem? The God of shame. What does it mean, the God of shame? Isn't He the God of everyone? He's the God of all civilization. He's the God of shame, isn't He? He's the God of everyone. What does it mean, He's the God of shame? Now, you say something like this when you say, don't you? What does it mean that he's the God of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov? Isn't he the God of all civilization? He's everyone's God, isn't he? So what does that mean? So one way to understand it, he's the God who took special care of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Or he's the God that Avram Yakov and Yaakov prayed to when they were in need. He's the God that, you could also understand it, like Chumash I think does, is that he's the God that Avram Yakov and Yaakov talked about. When someone talks about a god, I'll give you the example. Um, someone was looking for a burial plot for his wife. Um, what was his name? Abraham Avino. Remember? <laughs> Not far from here. A stone's throw from Koshetzion is in Kirat Arba. Someone the till there yesterday, weren't you, with Ezra? You, you saw the new Michvot. It's like, those who were there, it's like awesome stuff. Now, um, so he's looking for a burial plot, right? And you know, they're bargaining, because. He's Jewish, whatever it is. Uh, and how did he refer to Abram? What's he called? Right? He's called Nasi Elohim Who elected him president? There was no, there was no, no one could tweet back then. How did, how did everyone know that Abram is the president of or the Sea of God? You know why? You know what Abram did for a living? He talked about God all the time. There was Abram... And that's what makes Avram Avram. He's someone who talks about God. Because what does Avram do? We'll see in a minute. Avram is korei b'shem Which doesn't mean he called to God, but called out about God. There's just two ways of understanding Avram calling out in God's name, which Avram would do over and over again. Does Avram call out to God and pray to God? Or is Avram calling out about God? In Hebrew, talking to God would be tefillah. Talking about God would be called tehillah. You've heard the book of Tehillim? Half is tefillah. Talking to God when you're in need. Half, the other half is tila talking about God. Especially at the end of the book. Tila David. So, part of being Jewish is we have a God who takes care of us and therefore we pray to Him. But yet there's a God who has a job for us to be His people. And as His people, what are we chosen to do? Like To make a name for God. How do you make a name for God? Well, you talk about Him a lot. We call it davening. Because most of davening is tila not Tefillah. Calling it a prayer book is... It's either you have to redefine what prayer means, but it's a praise book more than a prayer book. And Tehilim, I think, is called praises, isn't it? Well, it's more tila than Tefillah. There's Tefillah, but it's also tila. And if everyone's going to a certain doctor, for, that also makes them, that's, that's the best praise of saying he's a good doctor. So people turn to God in prayer and he answers the prayer, that's great marketing. So if you need something and you ask God for help and he helps you, and when he helps you, you, think, you say thank you, called modim, that's also great promoting for God. So if God knows that you'll say thank you when He answers your prayers, that's a good reason for Him to answer your prayer. But if you forget about Him after the members say for Shoftim, that's part of the problem. They turn to God when they're in trouble, but they don't remember Him when it's over. And that's how David's going to be different. In fact, David writes that book, doesn't he? Now, um, so therefore, what I want to claim is that Shame was named Shame because He was supposed to make a name for God. And He gets started. He doesn't start a nation, but He starts the idea. And Borach Hashem, Elohim, means He's blessing Hashem. That's the guy who shame is talking about. Now, shame doesn't start a nation, but he has children, he has ten generations. And from the Toldot of shame, we end up with Avram Avinu, just like for the Toldot of Adam, we ended up with Noah. And from shame, we'll get to Terah, and we have three sons. One of them we be Avram Avinu, and we end up with 70 nefesh going down to Egypt, just like we had 70 nations coming up from Toldot of Adam to Noah, if you know that set up in Sefer Bereshit. And therefore, once Avram is chosen, God says, begin that journey. You know, I want, remember, what did God tell Avram? Begin that journey. Remember, And then he tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Is that the purpose of your being chosen? Or is that the reward for being chosen? Right in the beginning, it's the same question. When God tells Avram, begin that journey, Avram should be wondering why. He could be wondering, what's in it for me? Oh, God says, oh, you get, to be, you get to be great. You get to become president. Yeah. Why would someone want to be president just to make his name great? No. Like, maybe... <laughs> it would be much easier just to build a tower in the middle of the city and put your name on the tower. <laughs> Some of that, that's the story of... Isn't that Migdal Bavell? Yeah? Is that the next... Yeah. Look at the next source. Chapter 11. Will we go bankrupt? Okay. Hey. Um, see, remember, lanu the folks got it? And that's the last story where God's angry again before He picks up from Avinu. Because civilization develops, but they don't recognize God. They only recognize man. And they don't recognize that God gave man the ability to become civilized and to build buildings and to build cities. So there's nothing wrong with a city as long as it's associated with God. Later there'll be a need for a city. They will make a name for God, better known as Amakom Hashiv HaRashem. Understand now? The Sheken sham. In many ways... Migdabbavel will be fixed. The tikkun of will be Yerushalayim. You understand why? There'll be a city. Okay, with what he called it. And it'll be a name for God as opposed to a name for man. Uh, Yeshua pretty much says that in chapter 2, remember? All the nations will come to Yerushalayim, that There'll be a city. There's nothing wrong with the city and the building as long as it's sanctifying God and not forgetting God. And then when Avram himself is chosen, what happens? Avram Again, in chapters 12, 13, and 21, you can check him out for homework, but basically when Avram makes Aliyah from Bethel, he comes to El. that's the highlight, and what does he do in El? Calls out in God's name. He goes down to Egypt, comes back from Egypt, what does he do? Calls out in God's name. And when he makes a treaty with Avimelech, who wants to make a treaty with him. God, He looks forward, Avimelech wants, wants to associate himself with Avram, because what does he say? God's with you in everything you're doing. Avimelech sees there's a connection between Avram's success and is talking about God. Remember what he says? I see God's with you in everything you're doing. We read it in Rosh Hashanah. And then at the end of the story, Abram both in Eshel and Be'er Sheba, and he calls out in God's name. Again, what's he doing? Abram's making a name for God and that's a paradigm for Jewish history. Now, um, so that's the idea of shame. I hope that, that's clear. What I want to say is Chumash, through its story, is developing a theme to understand why we're chosen. And one of God's goals of why does he want a Jewish people, God's the God of all civilizations, God of all humans. He made everyone. He wants everyone to be good. And he picked a nation to bring that concept of godliness to civilization, to humankind. To facilitate that, he picks one nation and what do they need to do? They need to talk about God. Now, if that's the case, I need a nation. That's going to be a long historical process to become the nation. We've been going into Egypt, coming out of Egypt. And that nation needs to recognize its purpose. It has to be dedicated to God. It'll get to Torah. And then we're going to be set up our nationhood. And once it's working, what do we need to do? We need to go public. But when you go public? Now, from the time we received the Torah and the Mishkan and the time we entered the land of Israel, we need a constant reminder that we're God's people. That we need to know. But at what point do we start talking about God publicly? Because if you talk about God publicly and you're not presentable, it does more harm than good. So you might need to remember your long-term goal. Your vision, your long-term vision, you might need to remember, but you can't always fulfill a long-term vision. Sometimes you can have a vision, a goal, but you can't fulfill it now at a certain stage in life. I want to I run the marathon. Right now i got a broken leg. But I can train for it, hopefully to get better. I can't have a vision for something, even though right now I can't fulfill it. But to make that vision happen, I have to be worthy of that vision. And therefore we're going to see, we can't go public with this idea of making a name for God unless the nation is mature enough For it to work. And you understand where we're going now. What's the transition from Mishkan to Mikdash? It's not just a better, a permanent Mishkan that reminds us that we're God's people. If the only function of a Mikdash is a super Mishkan, where I get closer to God, and I remember even better that we're God's people, and then we have to serve Him, fine. But if there's an element of, of being international, if there's a universal element to the Mishkan, that it's going to be a vehicle through which we make God's name known not just for ourselves, but to other nations. It can only happen when people look up to us. And if you follow the state for Shoptim, what are we going to find? We don't find from the time of Yeshua any nation who's friendly with us. Instead, what do we find? Everyone hates us. Don't want to bring modern-day examples. But everyone hates us, right? No one likes us in Shoptim. Only one nation pretends <laughs> to like us. And they're phony. the Right? <laughs> In fact, that's why they, if you read carefully in Sefer Yahshua, that's why they sign. Because they say we heard about God's name, all these people come from far away and we heard about your God, how great it is, they sign right away, hey, we read the Bible. That's good. And then they find out they were tricking them. Now, therefore, what I want to claim is that David thinks that in his time period, the nation is finally in a situation where we, we're ready to go public. Let me show you if you have your Tanakh open. In Sefer Shoftim, I'm sorry, Sefer Shmo'aleth, Shmo'vet, I'm sorry, Sefer Bet, Perakay, at the end of the Perak, after he builds up Yerushalayim and brings the Mikta and brings the Aron to Yerushalayim. Um, I'm sorry, the end of parak Vav, after he brings the Aron to Yerushalayim. Now that's with Michal. Um, I'm sorry, there, I was right. The end of Perakay, the end of chapter 5, in Pasekir um, in Aleph, chapter 11, after he takes Yerushalayim. When a foreign nation, Lebanon, Tzor, Tzor inside in Lebanon, which is a big economic power, a big port city, when David makes a treaty with the king of Lebanon and we get along with him and they're sending building materials and they want to be associated with the Jewish people, David sees that God is with him and now he knows that things are moving in the right direction. So David needed a sign from God that we're in the right direction and we're, we're becoming international. And for the first time in Jewish history, a foreign nation outside Israel wants to make a treaty with us and looks up to us. And we have economic ties with them, And that's Lebanon. And what's David say? David says that's a sign from God that David knows that God's with him and he's chosen. What's the next step? He brings that road to Jerusalem. Got it? And then, it takes a while, but finally makes it there. And the next step is, let's build a house for God in Yerushalayim. In essence, what's God's answer going to be? Slow down. You're there, but not yet. So, Lebanon likes you. Where's your tree with Jordan? Where's Syria, you follow? Where's, where's everybody else? Just jumping ahead. Remember Shlomo Melech? Remember, how come he has so many wives? Because taking a wife from a foreign king, how come he marries the daughter of the king of Egypt? And the daughter of the king of Melech, Because sure. what's Shlomo doing? Marrying the wife, uh, marrying the daughter of a foreign king is how you establish and formalize a treaty with other nations. And other nations want to do business with us. We have a great economy. Someone from me, some queen from Ethiopia, I think, comes to visit, doesn't she? I think Makkah comes. We're finally in a position of international stature when people look up to us. Then it's time to build the temple. Understand what happens? And we'll see that's what, God, that's what God's going to tell David. That would be the deeper part of the answer. In other words, it's not just a a better temple, a better Mishkan. There's a new need. And what's the need now? Now, as a nation, there's a need to take the idea of being God's people and make it public. We can't go public until we're ready to go public. Until when people come to visit, they're impressed and not upset. They come here and they see people wait in line. They don't cut. You follow? They see a people that sanctifies God in their day-to-day life. In fact, there's a whole guidebook about how to live our day-to-day life as a nation called Chumash, or called Torah, about how to live not just as an individual, but not just Yishim to you, but how to live as a people. Remember Shoftim and Remember the book of Devarim? But there's whole sets of laws about how do you go to war, when you go to war, what you do before you go to war, your economic system, your social justice system, your judicial system. There's a whole set of laws that if they're kept properly, we have a nation that sanctifies God not only by its individual behavior, but also by its national behavior. Now, let's go back for a second and I want to show you um, the next source with the word makom. But I want to bring a proof or bring a support to the idea that you can have a dream to build a house for God but you can't fulfill it until you're ready. So, where's the first time we have a concept of a house for God in Chumash in case you didn't see the source sheet? Who's the first one to talk about a house for God? Anyone know? Now, or look at the source sheet. Yaakov Avino, isn't he? Avram doesn't talk about building a house for God because he's moving from tent. He's on the move. He, he makes a name for God. He builds, you know, uh, he's got a Chabad house in in, Beit Shem, in, in uh, Sheva where he talks about God. But he, he's not building a house for God yet. The first one with the idea is Yaakov Avino. Everyone knows the story about Yaakov? So Yaakov is running away from his brother. His life is falling apart. And remember, they just chose... The whole story of Yaakov, you know. And then on his way out, he happens to be... Remember I'm making, there's wordplay, the word Makom, okay? everyone knows the story, but the word Makom is big. And what did Chazal say for some reason? That's not Beit what is it? It's Yerushalayim. It's the place of the Mikdash. Because what does Yaakov call the place? The city was named Luz, but he calls it Beitel. That's not the name of the city. That's the function of the city. Beit is not the name of the city. Beit is what it means, the house for God. Where it'll be, finally, let God choose. That's the story later on. Okay, Yaakov gets up from his dream, called realization. Okay, what's Yaakov say? He wakes up from his dream. God appears to him. You're the chosen son. Don't think you're being rejected. No, even though, even though you're leaving Israel, you're the chosen son. And the dream and goal I had for Avram and Yitzchak is going to go through you. Remember, the God, I'm the God of Avram and Yitzchak. And you're going to get this land. You're going to become my people, even though you're leaving. And what did God say? And even though you're leaving, I'll bring you back. I'll take care of you. And when you come back, then things will settle down. That's God's promise to Yaakov. What's Yaakov's reaction? What a great place this is. What's he say? He says, he sees this is a gate to heaven. Now, how is it a gate to heaven? He sees the angels. How does he know it's a house for God? So I want to claim this isn't prophecy. He doesn't know it's a house for God. He's not saying, I see one day there'll be a temple here. Rather, he sees what a great place to build a house for God. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're in 1960, again, uh, pretend in America, and you see these plans for interstate highway system. And you see there's going to be interstate um, 71 going this way and interstate 80 going that way. So what would a Jewish entrepreneur do? You buy a land where? Where they meet, you buy the land. You see the plans. So you're not. Where are you going to? You're not going to build a gas station there. You're going to build what? A shopping mall there. No, it's, you see this place has potential. I have vision. It might take 20 years, so it's already I can build that Walmart. But but ask Sam, ask, um, um, I forgot his name. Um, but but, yeah, <laughs> uh, but someone with a vision, seeing long ahead. What's Yaakov saying? When I come back, he' will say, "This is a great spot. If God appeared to me here, what I would love to do is build here a house for God, and therefore, what does he do? How does he prepare his preparation? He gets up in the morning, he takes the stone that he used to protect his head, okay um, and he puts it up as a, it's a reminder he needs to mark this spot a monument. He puts oil on it to anoint it, okay By crash Shema Makomahu Shema Makomahu even though the really was blues and what what do you mean by nope?" It's not officially now Beit El population one or something like that. It's Beit El. This night, I'm, I'm laying a cornerstone to build a temple later on. Okay. And then he makes a promise. What's he promised? If and when God takes care of me like he promised and does bring me back and he'll take care of me, then Evan Azotash or something may said, yeah, Beit Elohim. Got it? He's making a resolution. He's not making a prediction what will be. He's making a resolution what needs to be. When I come back, and let's say I come back and get married and have children and have a family and God takes care of me, and I inherit the land like God promised my forefathers, and I am that chosen son, and the family of Israel begins with me, like what will happen? Then what does Yaakov want to do now that the choosing process is over, which is the end, going to be the end of Sefer Bereshit? What would Yaakov love to do when exile is over and I'm coming back? When things settle down and people look up to me, I'll make a name for God. Like who did? Like Abraham Mimitzchak did. Now, why doesn't Yaakov build a back and call it in God's name like Avram and Yitzchak did? Because he can't. You understand? Avram could make a name for God because he's a big shot. People listen to him. Yitzchak, only after he's, people look up to him, he calls makes he also calls out in God's name. After he makes peace, remember? When there's Sina and Essek in Rechovot, remember, he doesn't call it in God's name. Only after Rechovot, then he goes to Beershev and makes a name for God. You follow that story in, in Sefer Bereshit, which you're familiar with. The only time even Yitzhak can make a name for God is when people listen to him. When he has, Yaakov's a fugitive. He has no audience. He'd love, listen, that's, that's his nether. And that's Jewish history. He has a vision for one day of building a house for God. But in his personal life, he can't. But the fact I can't do it right now doesn't mean I can't keep that vision with me. He puts up a monument, a reminder. He puts oil on it. He lights a Hanukkah candle. He'll have, at the darkest time of the year. That's a, you understand Hanukkah? I can keep a vision for a temple even though I don't have one. Because sometimes you can't fulfill that vision but doesn't mean that I can't pass it on to the next generation and keep the flame going of an idea. So Yaakov's dream, therefore what should Yaakov do when he comes back with a full family? I'm going to get in trouble for now but Yaakov should come back and build a house for God and fulfill his promise. Why doesn't he? That's the story in Sefer Bereshit. Because before he goes to Beit El he has a story in Shechem. What happens in Shechem? You can argue right thing or wrong thing but after that story in Shechem when you wipe out the whole city and you're being condemned in the UN, and, and you might have been right, and you're sure that you're right. We're not going to train our sister that way, right? But no one else buys it. And God has to save him, right? You know Ember's story? Whatever it is, Yaakov can't build a house for God. Instead, Beit El tragically becomes an miklat, doesn't it? It becomes a city of refuge. Instead of Beit El becoming a place where he makes God's name, it becomes a place of prayer. And he builds him his back there to the God who saved me from Esau. So Yaakov returns to Betel, but not to build a temple for God's name, but rather to build a mizbeach to so the God who saved me last time, he saved me again. And then a couple years later, Yosef is sold, and Yaakov is broken. And Yaakov can't fulfill his matter because his life is a disaster. Because that's Jewish, that's not, it, it's, a, it's a paradigm for what could be Jewish history, but it might be. But Yaakov's life is galut. Took him this forno's introduction to Chumash. He talks about the, how each of the abut reflects different time period, different potential for different time periods in Jewish history, we can be living in an age of Abram, an age of Yitzhak, or an age of Yaakov. And unfortunately, too much of our history is in the age of Yaakov. But you're always being chased, someone's out to get you, but you keep that vision going even though you can't fulfill it. So, in the same way that Yaakov can't build a house for God, but he can keep that dream going, in fact, who's going to fulfill his nether? You talk about it every morning in Daviding. Yaakov makes a nether to build a house for God. In fact, he's going to get his name changed there to Israel. Who's finally going to build a house for God's name? Well, we'll see it in a minute. David. And when he puts it all together, that's be the last source, we'll get there soon. When he puts the whole house together, you know what he's going to say? Which you know by heart. Remember, by David? David? Etam v'neakol David, bruchat Hashem. Israel Yisrael avinu, me'olam Who's Yisrael What's David doing? Who's getting the credit for this house? This house is for your name. Remember, it's in B'ruch Shamar. Remember, all is Imreza making a name for God. Yishtabach Shimcha, And therefore, the house that makes God's name known is the Mikdash, and the one who builds it is David. And the prayer that David, the benediction he makes for the whole people, it begins with V'var because what's he saying? I'm fulfilling the netter of, of Yaakov. He fulfilled it. We'll see it soon. That's why Elohi Yisrael Avinu. Now, um, so that's the idea of Makom. Now, Now we can finally get to God's answer to David in Devarim, but first go to the source E, along down the page. When when Shlomo is born, who's going to build the Mikdash? His name is Shlomo, and God's going to give him a second name, Shlomo Yedidia. If you want a little trivia question, who gets two names in Khamish? one Jewish, one Yiddish. Now, who gets? Who, who's the first person to get two names at birth? So Shlomo Yedidia is the first. Not, not not a double name, not like but two different names. Remember when the Bris, you have two people to name him after. Or yeah or nowadays it's you have you should name after the grandparent, but you're young Israeli, you want to do something Israeli, so you pick an Israeli name and a and a Jewish name and you're and what are you gonna call the kid and the have family feuds. No. <laughs> no. So 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 this idea of of uh, now, go now to source F. Okay. Uh, what is David Shlomo? Now we're gonna find out the, the full truth. Here's what you learned before you grew up, before you were me, for you, for you, in early in your education, here's the story with the blood. It's source F. It's Divra Yamim. It's not the story of David wanting to build the mikdash because that story is also in Devar Yamim, chapter 17. It's word for word, the exact same answer. Not you, but your son. But in chapter 22, David's already chosen the place um, where he's chosen Harbai because he builds, he buys that field from Ravner the Jebusite when there was that plague and God answered him. That was in chapter 21. In chapter 22. He gets everything ready to build a Mikdash. If you take a look inside in Dibra Emim, you'll see chapter 22 begins. David gets all the building materials ready, everything done. And then he commands Shlomo as follows. Remember David? Shlomo beni narvarach. What does David tell his son Shlomo? I got everything ready to build a house for who? For God's reputation. God doesn't need a place to live. We need a place to make his name known. Okay? Got it? A house for the name of God. What you have to explain to a son? Hey, if it's so important to you, Daddy, why didn't you build it? You see the highlighting? I wanted to build a house for God's name. You can't build a, name, a house for me, Why? Not because you as a person did something wrong. But rather, you were a man of war. You were living in forty eight. You were living in a generation of war. Important wars, great wars. David had to fight those wars. Wars of survival. But when you're living in a time period of war, I can't go public. You understand? You were living in a time period of Jewish history you were finally more successful than anyone before you. And you accomplished great things militarily. But your generation, I call Dor Tashach, you're living in a time of war. And therefore, you're growing too fast. You have a great idea, you have a great vision, but not yet. Because you're the vision. Instead what? Listen carefully. He named Ben-No-Lav That's By the way, that's the answer you've all heard. That's where it comes from. And no one learned Ibrahim in kindergarten. <laughs> but he's just heard about it. Because it's so good. Why? Because it sounds like something so holy, if you have blood, you can't... You have, it sounds like a personal thing. Because you have to be this holy person. If you killed someone in war, you can't build a temple for God kind of thing. That's that sounds like more of like on a personal level. I'm talking about the national history where we're at. Where are we in Jewish history as a nation? And God's telling David, your generation's almost there but not enough. One more generation. And listen how he articulates it now in Potsaktep. He named Ben no You'll have a son. Hu there'll be another generation quiet after him, where things will really be quiet. Okay? Kishlomo Yeshmo, Vesholom Veshekhidisrabi Amav, lishmi? Understand what I'm getting at? I think it's all right there, isn't it? Right? Now, when God tells David, you have a son his name will be Shlomo, that's not a prediction, that's direction. He's not saying, I seen a crystal ball, you have a son whose name will be Solomon, and he'll build the temple. That's what we call, that's not, that's not Jewish prophecy. God is giving David direction. In order for your son to build a temple for God, he needs to be Shlomo. Don't call him Shlomo because of the of Matria. He has to be Shlomo like Shuto Shemikra. He has to be a man of peace. Because only if Shlomo is a man of peace, what will happen? He'll be able to build it. What's, what's the prerequisite to build a house for God? Not just a secure monarchy. You have to be living in a time of peace with your nations around you. And therefore, at his breast, call him Shlomo. Why? Because he needs to remember, it's like shame needs to remember his job to make a name for God. Your son Shlomo is going to make a name for God. He has to remember he has to be a man of peace. And to make sure to do it. In fact, you might be wondering, why is David's last will and testament to tell Shlomo to kill all these different people? It can't be because of... In other words, if the way you usually understood it, that doesn't make sense. Because he, he spilled blood. But all the people on David's hit list are all people who are going to cause another civil war. The people constantly be causing civil wars. I don't think Yoab, every civil war. You might be right, but he's behind it. Uh, Adonai is going to start a split kingdom. Uh, They're all going to charge. They'll all cause people. They'll all cause them. And you have to be living in time. In order to make sure there's peace, sometimes you have to do a hit list. He actually puts them under house arrest and they break the house arrest and that's why he's able to kill them. Now, uh, therefore, what does David do? It's clear what David wants. In order to build a Mikdash, I need a son who's known for peace. And that's the meaning of the name Shlomo. But again, that's direction, not just a prediction. Now, um, when David finally um, you know, appoints Shlomo to take over, David can spend the last several years of his life getting everything together to build the Mikdash. And Deberi Yamim, is from chapter 22 to chapter 29 exclusively every effort that David does to build the Beit the Mikdash. In fact, most of Deberi Yamim is about all the efforts that David does to build Yushayim and the Mikdash because it's being written at the beginning of the second temple period to inspire the people to be like David at the first temple period because there's a big question should we or shouldn't we build the Mikdash in the time of David. In the time of um, Beit Shani. Now, in David's farewell speech, which we quoted before, which you say in Davening, here's what David tells Shlomo. David gathers the whole nation together. Everyone's invited. He charges Shlomo in public. He got all the building materials ready. We'll see in a minute. He says, there's a lot of work to do. Shlomo, my son, he's talking in public to everybody. Um, and it's not a one-man job because this house is for God. Um, I everything ready. All the gold, the silver. There's a whole national assembly. Everyone's there. David presents publicly to Shlomo, who's going to be this, to succeed him, probably the last year of his life, in David's life. He makes a big public ceremony, charges Shlomo in public to build a house for God. Because what's what's David worried about his son? Every father's worried about his son who's going to take over. Shlomo's young. He's a teenager. What is David's biggest fear about his son? That it will be just like his father. <laughs> that what? What's he going to do for a living? How's Shomel going to make himself famous? What did my daddy do to become famous? He killed Goliath. He's, whoa, he's a man of war. I'm going to double my, I'm going to be greater than my father. And what will Shomel put all of his national ambitions on? More conquest, more land. More, making a greater name for myself, for the kingdom. Debbie's saying, my generation was one of war. You understand his answer now? He's saying it in in Musar. My generation was one of war. Wars that had to be fought. We had to fight them. We couldn't build a house for God. If your generation is one of peace, then we can build a house for God. And he's worried his son is going to be like his father. Said that was my generation. Be a person dedicated to God, but through peace, not through not through war. Uh, And therefore, I got everything ready. And then he gives his benediction. He wants to make sure that the house, the plaque on the house, won't be David's house, but rather God's house. Therefore, who gets the credit? Lachash and That's what we say in Davening, and that's why we say it in Davening. And why L'he Yisrael? Because Yisrael is the one who made um, the promise to build a house for God. In fact, Yaakov's name changed from Yaakov to Yisrael. It happens when he returns to Beitel, and the name becomes official. And again, Yaakov makes his merit again, and, and restates his vision to build a house for God. Now, to show this idea that there's an essential difference, there's a fundamental difference between the mikdash and the mishkan, that its function is not just closer to God, but rather to go public. We see that when Shomo builds the mikdash, he has a beautiful prayer that this should be a place where we're going to daven. But now for the first time, Shomo mentions, this house is open for foreign visitors. And that's going to be source H. Okay? And he says, he talks about should there be war, should there be famine. Here's a place to daven, all chapter 8. And then he says as follows, V'gam nochri asher lo uba meretz shmecha even a non-Jew coming from now land, because I take it take your name. And if you look in your Tanakh, I don't. I don't think I continue it here. I uh, don't no, no, continue. But it says, "Kishmud shimcha gadol." You no, know, they'll hear about you, and they'll come and recognize you. David asked God answer. I mean, Shlomo asked God answer their prayers, even of a non-Jew, so that they'll come to recognize you like we recognize him. So we see in Shlomo's prayer that. We, there's, there's a shift already in the focus of the Mikdash. And that's just the place that we remember our covenantal connection to God, that we have to be good and we have to, that our long-term vision is there. But we can actually fulfill that vision by having one central place where people come and visit. And actually, it works several years later. Who comes to visit? Maqad comes to visit. And what do you hear about? Maqad Sheva Shem HaShem See the same thing? What makes God's name great? She doesn't hear about how great God is. She hears how great Shlomo is. Because what Shlomo has? He has great high tech. He has great, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, a great economy, big strong army, but no wars. But because of his strong army and strong economy, words, it's a nation everyone's looking up to, and everyone wants to come visit. And Makashwa is amazed by his wisdom. He's publishing things, publishing ideas, TED Talks. And, and <laughs> Makashwa wants to come to visit him. She comes with this all entourage. And when she leaves, um, what does she say? He says, okay. What she see when she comes on a royal visit, she goes to, she sees Yad Vashem and the kotel and the Knesset, no, I'm sorry. She goes to see the Beit HaMikdash, Beit HaMelech, all the building projects that Shlomo did. She goes on a royal visit. She's aghast. She's amazed. She says, I don't believe what I saw. I, did, I heard about it. I didn't believe it. Now I see it's even more than I thought of, she says. He says, you should be blessed. You people are lucky that you have a king doing what with his power? Mishpat and Staka. And that's the whole theme of David, why David is chosen. In other words, other nations, and that's Tidim I Bet, you can look at that for homework, Tidim um, 72, that last chapter of book 2, where David gives a tip to his son Shlomo about what the essence of his kingdom is, to be a kingdom doing mishpat, mishpat and Staka with its wealth. And other nations coming to visit because they hear about how great we are, not about how strong we are only, but what we do with our strength. Using our strength to build this just and upright society. Um, so now we have two minutes. I was hoping to get around to solve the problem. Of, so what do we do today? In case you didn't catch on. <laughs> so, let's go back to our head. No, do we need a mikdash or we want a mikdash? You follow? It's, do we want something to be closer to God? It's important. You want to be close. And it's wonderful. Uh, my good friend, uhm, But that's, that's the essence of it. His, his desire to be in Harabai is totally ruhani. Nothing, it might be nothing political. People, I don't see him that way. He's total ruchani. thing. Now, people might politically disagree. It might, could be, can love God just as much, but think it's the wrong time, it's a tactical decision. So the desire to want to be close to God, to have an even better reminder of Harsinai, is important. That's something to want, that to desire. The need to be God's people, that's wonderful. And the need to be close to God, that's wonderful. But do we need one as a nation? Are we in a situation that as, a nation, as a people that the other nations look up to us? It could be they hate us for whatever reason. But bottom line, what's called... Um, Bifchan, what's called? Bifchan um It's called Bifchan HaTotza. In reality, other nations don't look at... Other nations don't respect this as much as we, we hope they should. Maybe they should, but they don't. We can argue. I don't want to get the politics behind it. Who's to blame? We're not going to be self-hating Jews, but we can't be self-righteous Jews either. Um, in order to build a house for God, we have to be worthy of it. So, the transition that we find in the time of David, from Mikdash to Mishkan, even God says, not yet. Great... Great desire, it's a great dream, like Jacob's dream. But sometimes in Jewish history, we're not ready for it yet. But there's a way, the fact you're not ready for it doesn't mean you can't build it. How do you build it? By creating the need. And therefore, the first step in rebuilding Yerushalayim is going to be to understand why it was, why it was destroyed. And for that, we have, we read Naveen Rishon, that's Naveen Aharonim. I'll just bring one quick quote from um, Yirmiyahu. He's in the Mikdash and he tells the people, what are you guys doing here? You know, he says, you know, if you want God to dwell with you and be here, yeah, don't think Karbonot, no, don't think heichal, don't think the temple will save you. Don't think korbanot and prayer will save you. And he yells at them. Um, don't be bad. And then if you do that, then you can stay in this house. You can, your kingdom can remain. But if you don't do that, you understand what the king's saying? And what all, all Yermiel and Yeshayah, all the Navim who talked about korban saying, the fact that you have a temple, makes things worse for you. Why? If you didn't have a temple and you didn't go public with this idea of God's people and you were corrupt and rotten and unjust, okay, you're like everybody else. But if you're waving the flag we're God's people and you're screaming out to everyone we're God's people and you're showing off you are God's people and when people come to visit your society is unjust and corrupt. Remember, you know, everything you're doing is bad. Yeah. Then I can't allow that to continue. I have to be more strict on you because you're talk, because you're praying to me. The second you associate yourself as God's people... I'm going to be more strict because my reputation is at stake. And there's nothing worse for God's reputation than the people talking about God but not acting, we have too many examples on the news. The people talking in God's name and doing things which are, which are disastrous. That's a, there's no bigger than that than anything. Um, let's say someone, let's say a big rabbi gets caught with embezzling, um, what do you call it? funds, uh, social funding from a government. There's, there's, that's a terrible type of chile because because he's a rabbi. Now, and therefore, um, I'll just end with Shmonesrei, we say every day, in Perak Gimel. Remember, there's a broken this in Shmonesrei, but Etzemach David Abdahamer Tatzmiach right after Bonei Yerushalayim. So Yine Yamin Baimnu Hashem Akimotid LeDavid Etzemach Zedik Hamalach um, Malach Viskel Basam Ishpatz Lakab Aaretz Bemati Veshay Yehuda uh, Vezeh Shmo Yikra Hashem Tizkenu. Got it? And one last line in Yom for you people who made Aliyah. Vehin Yine Baimnu Hashem V'yomur Othchai Hashem B'Sharalat Bonei Soameretz Mitzrayim Kima Hashem one of the greatest ways to make God's name great is for not just having an Aron to represent God but having a nation that gathers from all four corners of the globe and desires to come and live in Israel and build a nation in Israel that can be the, that, that's one of the greatest Kiddush Hashems you can have so our generation has been blessed with one now that we've had that blessing and come back what we do with that blessing that's our biggest challenge thank okay. you